0: So here in our second session, 2 Chronicles chapter 17, and we're dealing with Jehoshaphat, but not exhaustively because the narrative in 2 Chronicles relating to Jehoshaphat is quite long, and it covers uh, chapter 17 through to chapter 20, which is too long a passage to deal with in detail. So what I'm going to do is do the same as I did last night. I'm going to read a lot of sections, and then I'm going to presume upon your Uh, knowledge of the passage whether you know it yet or whether you'll know it after i've spoken Um, and then you can come back to this teaching if you want to on the app it's up to yourself but um, that's how we're going to approach this to to cover the ground i want to cover so let's just uh, dive into chapter 17 and verse number one and jehoshaphat his son reigned in his stead that is asa that we were thinking about last night And he strengthened himself against Israel and he placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa his father had taken. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and he sought not unto Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents, and he had riches and honour in abundance. And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and groves out of Judah. Also, in the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes, and then there's a whole lot of princes' names that I'm not going to try and pronounce, and he said, them to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them he sent Levites, and the same applies, and then at the end of verse 8, uh, priests as well. Verse 9, and they taught in Judah, and had the book of the law of the Lord with them, and went throughout, went about throughout all the cities of Judah, and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Also, some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and tribute silver, and the Arabians brought him flocks, and so forth. And verse 12, And Jehoshaphat waxed exceeding, or great exceedingly, and he built in Judah castles and cities of store, and he had much business in the cities of Judah. And the men of war, mighty men of valour, were in Jerusalem. Now down to verse uh, 1 of chapter 18. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honour in abundance, and joined affinity with Ahab. And after certain years, he went down to Ahab to Samaria, and Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance and for the people that he had with him, and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. And Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war and the rest of chapter 18 is a narrative about what happened in that war and before they went they consulted a prophet um, called Micaiah and there's a whole narrative about the interaction between Jehoshaphat, Ahab and that prophet and the prophet's um, prophesying was rejected and he was imprisoned actually and they went ahead and fought nonetheless. And it wasn't good. And then come down to chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. Now that will do for a reading, and I'll refer to chapter 20 as we go through. So the background to Jehoshaphat is different from the background to Asa that we were thinking about last night. Asa, you remember, succeeded a king who was wicked, his father was wicked, Abijah, and had taken the people of God uh, quite far down a path towards sin and towards wickedness. Now what happened is that Asa, we saw, had 35 years of peace and of seeking the Lord, and then six years at the end of his life where he did not seek the Lord. So when Jehoshaphat comes to the throne, he's coming to a different context. He's coming to a nation that by and large over the majority of the past generation had been seeking God and had been putting away idolatry. But there was a blip at the end, there was that six-year period at the end of his life. So Jehoshaphat comes on the throne and he's succeeding a good king who just ended badly. But a good king nonetheless. He does not inherit a nation that is at war. You remember one of the consequences of that six-year period was that rather than peace, then Asa would know war. And if he would not seek God's help in conflict, then he would have conflict without God's help. And that was the last six years of his life. So this is different. And Jehoshaphat comes on the throne. And Jehoshaphat begins well, as these kings that we're thinking about, uh, this weekend generally do. And he has good days, very good days. And we're going to think about them for a wee while. If you look at the first six verses of chapter 17, you discover this that Jehoshaphat pleased God. And there's always lessons to be learned when you read about someone who pleases God. Because that is something that we should be doing. And Jehoshaphat strengthened himself against Israel. We we'll see that in verse number one of chapter 17. And he recognized. And you remember the difference between Israel and Judah. You remember Israel is the ten tribes. Israel is a, is a nation that goes away from God persistently, continually. They have no good kings after the Jeroboam-Rehoboam split. And they're always going away from God. And so one of the challenges of Judah was to identify that. And the kings of Judah had to identify that Israel actually was a bad influence upon Judah. Israel should not be together with their present spiritual condition, should not be together with Judah. There should be separation from that sinful nation, from that sinful people. And so he recognises this and he strengthens himself against the danger to Judah, which was Israel, very sadly. So you've actually got God's people who are a spiritual danger to another group of God's people. And there had to be a discernment and a distinction drawn between them because of the way they were living their lives. So Jehoshaphat recognises that. And he recognises that militarily and politically and spiritually there had to be a difference. So he strengthens his defences against this threat. And from the time of that national division, that was always the test. To what extent was the nation of Judah attracted towards the wickedness of the northern nation, towards the idolatry of the northern nation. To what extent would they put themselves as allies and join in that pathway away from God? So he recognises that he needs to place forces in the fenced cities to set garrisons, to create a buffer, to create a defence against the influence that would come from the north. That was their greatest danger. It was always their greatest danger. They didn't always realize it. So he does this and he strengthens his defenses against what were actually spiritual enemies. So he prepares for war. Now, I was saying last night that Asa, one of the great things he did was that in times of peace, he prepared for war. And there's such a spiritual lesson in that. And he's doing the same. But something different happens. He is facing an enemy in the north who is very subtle, Ahab, one of the wicked men and wicked kings of the Old Testament. And although he prepares for all-out war, sets defenses, uh, and sets a buffer against the influence of the north, the effect of that influence will not be manifested or the the means of influence coming down from the north will not be an all-out frontal assault by an army. It's much more subtle than that. And so he prepares for war, but that's not how Ahab will undermine Judah and affect Judah. It's a wee bit like Peter. He's such a graphic example of this. You remember Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? And I love Peter. I love Peter's... um, transparency and his 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 genuine desire to serve the lord jesus so there is a band of armed men come to take the lord and peter out of all the disciples steps forward so he doesn't lack courage or commitment and he draws a sword what's he going to do he's going to fight them now There's a band of soldiers coming. He steps out, it seems without a thought, and he just draws his sword. His instinctive reaction is to step forward and to fight. And I think if that fight had developed, he would have laid down his life gladly for the Lord. He had no lack of courage. He had no lack of faith. This is the man who walked in water towards the Lord Jesus. So he steps forward, he draws his sword, and then then he goes. He actually starts to fight and of course that wasn't what the Lord would have of him but Peter will fight an army Peter will not be spiritually destroyed by force that's not the sort of person he is he reacts well to overwhelming force but what he doesn't react well to is the question of a young girl by the side of a fire fire one night, who just asks a question. So Peter, who'll swing a sword for Christ, can't answer a question. Peter, who will face overwhelming force of our men, crumbles when a young girl asks him a question. You see, that's the sort of person he is. He was taken unawares. And he crumbled spiritually by the subtlety of Satan. So we must understand this, that not all spiritual assault upon the Lord's people comes in overwhelming force, aggressive, eh, hostile, um, very visual. The most effective attack is often the most subtle. And that's what brings down Jehoshaphat. Now, it doesn't destroy him, but it brings him down. Subtlety. So, however, in his earlier days, he's doing the right thing. He's strengthening his army. He's placing forces along the city, along the, the national borders, and so forth. And then it also says this, he walked in the ways of his father. But it actually says he walked, in verse number 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam. The first ways. It's interesting that he should say the first ways. Because when you go back to the days of David, and remember last night I was saying that David is the litmus test, he's the touchstone. And so kings were doing well when they walked in the ways of their father David. That was the reference point to them. So you have this man after God's own heart, this flawed spiritual uh, man, this poet warrior, this man who would lead a nation, this remarkable man, David, with all the complexities of his character and of his life. And yet he is the man that they all sought to be and to follow, David. But it says here that Jehoshaphat just didn't walk after the ways of David. He walked after the first ways of his father, David. You see, David's life can be split into two. And there is that significant event that divides <coughs> David's life into two. There is a before and there is an after. And it is his adultery with Bathsheba. You see, when you read about the life of David before that, and when you read David's Psalms before that, you discover this, there is a joy, there is, a, there is something that is uplifting um, about David's Psalms and his writings and his experience. There is a, an innocence, there is a kind of Um, joyful innocence in his service for the lord and you read the narrative of his history and he's you know he's fighting animals for the lord and he's, he's going to fight a giant and he just he's walking and he's got no baggage it seems he's just strolling down into that valley and his faith is just pure and his confidence in god is pure and he lifts the stones and he defeats the giant and then he comes back up and there's no pride or arrogance about him. There's there's nothing. He's just. And then you know he becomes a refugee and he's hunted by Saul. And this is the man who stands over the head of his enemy and he can he can take the head off his enemy, but he would not lay his hand upon the head of God's anointed. There's something just right about David. There's something um, kind of innocent uh, and transparent, and it's all just going in the right direction. And then he becomes the warrior king. And he's leading the armies of God into battle. And he's succeeding time after time after time. And the Philistines are getting beaten. And he establishes the nation. And again, it's all good. And then he stands on top of a house one day. And he sees a woman. At the time when kings were meant to go to war. And he sins grievously in the matter of Bathsheba. He, he murders a good man for his wife. He commits adultery. He conceives a child. The whole thing's a disaster. And from that point on, the happy days of David are finished. Now, the service of David for God's not finished. But you read David's writings that are, are coming post Bathsheba, and they're different. There is a depth There is an anguish, there is a deep remorse and regret that seems to consume him. There is that uh, regret, yes, repentance, yes, but there's a difference, there's a change. There is a before and an after to David's great sin. You see, things just couldn't go on as if nothing had happened. Yes, there was repentance, but there was consequence and he bore the scars of it and he took the burden of it and remember this a child died as a consequence of it and the nation was afflicted as a consequence of it Spurgeon said this you recognise him as the same man but his voice is broken his music is now deep bass he cannot reach one high note of the scale from the hour in which he sinned he began to sorrow more and more then Spurgeon says this, so will it be with us if we are not watchful. We cannot sin without consequence. Yes, there is repentance. Yes, there is recovery. Yes, there is forgiveness. But there are also scars that are left by sin. And we bear burdens. And he is walking in the early ways. Before all of that took place, Jehoshaphat is is walking in the ways of his father, these first ways of his father, and he's not seeking Balaam. It's all good. And so he seeks the Lord, and he rejects the ways of Israel. That's verse 4. He sought the God of his father, and he walked in his commandments, and not according to the practices of Israel. Everything is crystal clear with this man at this stage of his life. So there's no compromise for him at this stage. There are clear distinctions between the ways of God and the ways of Israel. Everything is fairly straightforward. Now, there there are times in your life and times in my life when that is true things are just crystal clear and straightforward. There's, There's no real issue. There's no gray areas. And so we know what's right and we know what's wrong and we're walking in the ways that are right and we're rejecting the ways that are wrong and things are just clear. That was what it was in the days, in the early days of Jehoshaphat. I spoke last night about a well-worn path. Well, he was not creating a well-worn path to Balaam. He was creating a well-worn path towards the Lord and his commandments. And in this way, he was the same as his father Asa. God bless them says that the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and in those days kingdoms and kings were fragile and they came and they went but he was enjoying the promise of God which was that if they sought the Lord then he would have his kingdom established. All of that is good. And Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat in riches and honour and abundance. So that's all good. Now there is one distinctive about Jehoshaphat that stands out in these early days. And the distinctive was, in verse 7 down to verse 10, I didn't try and pronounce all these names, but in verse 7 down to verse number 10, he initiates a recovery of something that had been missing. And what he he initiated a recovery of was a teaching ministry in the nation of Judah. So he created again what God had first of all created, which was a band of teachers to bring the word of God to the people. They were teaching priests and Levites. And they had the important role of going amongst God's people and teaching them the law of God, teaching them the truth of God. Now, this actually made so much sense because it was the wisest, it was the best policy for a security-conscious king of Judah to to enact. It seems strange, but it actually was the best protection of God's people from their enemies round about. You see, the best protection was not to build a wall. You know, President Trump's trying to build a wall (laughs) to keep all the Mexicans out. You know, good luck to him in that. Uh, She and I drove uh, past that wall last year. Obama had built half of it. That doesn't matter. It was already there. But, you know, it's like a big sieve coming right through it. It doesn't matter. It's not even a solid wall. Um, So anyway, he's trying to build a wall to keep people out. So the idea is not a new one. I mean, the Romans tried to do that to us at Hadrian's Wall to keep us out. It's not a new idea. The East Germany tried to do it in Berlin to keep folk out and keep folk in. So what is happening is you can build a wall around your nation if you're a king of Judah to keep your enemies out. But what about the people who are in, inside that wall? Well, actually, Jehoshaphat's got a better policy. What he's going to do is he is actively going to promote a love for God through a love for his word that itself will be a protection against enemies that are outside. So he's going to take more care about what's inside than the perimeter roundabout and it was the most effective form of defense was the spiritual health and well-being of the people within the nation so he has these teachers who go out and their method i suppose it was a bit like billy graham their method um, was to be evangelistic with bible teaching to put it into modern terminology It was to take the word of God and to proclaim the law of Jehovah and to teach it, to educate the people of God, to promote the law of God and to bring the people of God into that spiritual knowledge and understanding and challenge them to live accordingly. So the idea was, through this teaching, was to lift the spiritual condition of the Lord's people. To lift them. Morgan, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but he says, no better service can be rendered to the nation than that of proclaiming the word of Jehovah to the people. In cities, towns, villages and hamlets, by such proclamation, the heart of the people would be turned to Jehovah. And that means that Jehovah would be able to do for them all that was in his heart. Another quote, "By this little band of princes, Levites and priests, 16 of them, Jehoshaphat did more toward impressing the surrounding nations with a sense of Judas' power than the largest and best-equipped standing army could have secured." You see, a show of force is only the same as out there, but maybe better or worse. It's just the same. I mean, if you've got an army of a million like the Ethiopians had against Asa, and you can put 300,000 in the field against them, that's impressive, but it's not as impressive as a million. It's just the same. But if you can put into the field a nation of people who love God and serve God, and through whom God can move, then you have overwhelming force, no matter your numbers, because you have that which they didn't have. And these are all pictures of our spiritual warfare and condition. So here is a lesson for us as the Lord's people to learn. That the importance to protect ourselves against our spiritual enemies. You remember the world, the flesh, the devil. You remember that which were our friends who became our enemies when we get saved. And the way to protect ourselves against the spiritual foes that we face is not just to be like them or to be better than them at what they do and all that kind of stuff, but it's to actually be spiritually healthy ourselves. And the way to be spiritually healthy is through his word. The teaching of it, the learning of it, the practice of it, the enjoyment of it, that it might all bring us to the Lord himself, that we might be united and strengthened around his word you know, I would think that one of the great needs of our day is not just to be evangelical with the Bible for people who are not Christians, the gospel, but to be evangelical with the teaching of the word of God amongst the Lord's people, wherever they are. That we might be, as the Lord's people, built up on our most holy faith, strengthened spiritually able to meet the challenges of our day, whatever they may be. Spiritually fitted Monday to Friday, not just at the weekend, to engage with the temptation of the world and with the strength of the flesh and perhaps the direct assault of the evil one on a Tuesday morning. How do you get that? Well, it's not actually hiding behind a fence that's been constructed. It is being spiritually healthy within yourself. And the way for that is through his word. So Jehoshaphat has this idea, and it's a great idea. And the other thing he did was this. He surrounded himself with good men. He chose well. The true treasure of his kingdom was in the dedicated and courageous men that he surrounded himself with. And I didn't read their names. I'm not that good with these names. But Amaziah, one of them, the son of Zikri it says this is one expression in that group of men and it's verse number 16. And it says this, and I love this little expression, who willingly offered himself to the Lord. So it doesn't say about anyone else, just this one man so out of these people that surrounded jehoshaphat here's this man who willingly offered himself to the lord and i was thinking about there must have been a point in his life a turning point in his life when he decided it would all go on the altar for god you've heard that expression Be your life on the altar for god what does that mean it means just give god the whole thing commit your time and your energy and your resources and your relationships to the lord give it to him to do what he would do with, to take you where he will take you, to actually produce through you what he would produce in your life, that you might be fruitful and productive for God. Just put it in the altar, whatever it is, as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 and verse 1 says. And you know I often speak about this, that we must not think of our service for God as only things which are overtly spiritual as we sometimes speak about them so it's not just when you've got a bible or a hymn book in your hand or when you're in christian company or something like that but our service for god the vast majority of it is done in a secular sphere not where the lord's people are gathered but where there are no none of the lord's people at all and the secular sphere is actually the normal place where we serve god the true place. And this is not a new concept. I even got a quote from Spurgeon uh, on this as well. Listen to what he said. There is no lawful occupation in which a man cannot thoroughly serve the Lord. It is a great privilege and blessing to be set apart to the work of winning souls. So he's speaking about his occupation. But we must never separate that work from all the rest of the callings of life as though it alone were sacred and all the rest were secular and almost sinful Spurgeon says serve God where he has put you do you know that's such a great quote because sometimes we think about you know daily tasks and your jobs as being secular therefore somehow secondary therefore somehow less value uh, and, and it's only those who are maybe preaching or witnessing or serving as missionaries or something that are actually doing the Lord's work that's not true at all. The Lord's work is done in the vast majority of, of occasions in the workplace or in the home or in the community or wherever God has placed you. That's where he would have you serve. And so here is Jehoshaphat and he has men round about him like Amaziah who willingly offered himself to the Lord. He didn't sit on a throne He wasn't one of the priest Levites getting around it. He just was a man who gave himself to God. Well, Jehoshaphat, as all these men did, really, because they were just flawed individuals, he had good days and bad days. And the bad days came. And the bad days did not come like his father Asa when armies were invaded. Jehoshaphat's bad days came with the subtle problem of gradual. Compromise in his life. Slippage, as sometimes we call it. He was compromised by stealth. And I didn't read the whole narrative, but when you go into chapter 18, you can discover this narrative. And you discover that this man Ahab, who you read about so much in relation to Elijah in the book of Kings, you discover that Ahab has a subtlety in his dealings with his southern neighbor, Jehoshaphat. In fact, if Ahab had declared war and marched his armies onto the border, Jehoshaphat would have would have stood him up, and marched his armies up to the border, and there would have been a resistance against the invasion. But Ahab is more subtle than that. So what he does is he manages to get his daughter married to Jehoshaphat's son. Now you read about it in verse number one of chapter eighteen it says Joshua had riches and, and honor in and abundance and joined affinity with Ahab, and then you go over to chapter 20, I think it is, and you discover this, that there's a marriage that takes place, that's the first thing now, why we know, why we, we, we can try and work out, why did this marriage take place, we're not told actually but the next thing we discover is in verse 3 of chapter 18 okay, so there's a wrong relationship, there's a marriage that takes place, there's compromise in that the next thing we hear is that Jehoshaphat is gone to have some fellowship time with Ahab. Two more unlikely characters. Yes, wicked King Ahab. Yes, godly man Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat goes down and they're having some fellowship around this big meal uh, and that seems okay, but it's not okay. There's a gradual drawing towards Ahab from Jehoshaphat. The next thing we hear is in verse 3, that in the midst of all of that feasting and celebration... Then Ahab has a suggestion. Sounds a good one. Actually sounds a spiritual suggestion. These are always the best ones, but the ones you need to just be very careful about. And so the suggestion was this, that they would go down to Ramoth, Gilead, and what they would do is... and you come, Rebecca. Nice to see you. Just right down the front. Dan, good to see you too, and the boys. Welcome. So we're in uh, 2 Chronicles 18. So Jehoshaphat uh, has a proposal, and the proposal is, let's go to Ramoth-Gilead and let's find out why was that a spiritual thing. Well, Ramoth-Gilead was one of the cities of refuge that God had instituted, that you read about in the Old Testament, and it was occupied by the Syrians. So let's go down there and let's reclaim that place for God a special place for God, let's get it back that sounds good so Ahab, you have joined your family to Jehoshaphat by marriage and you have invited them up north to have a feast during the feast you've made a suggestion that we have a joint venture to go and do a spiritual uh, activity and then the next thing you hear is Jehoshaphat responding what does he say? He said I am as you are I am as you are and then he goes beyond that My people is your people. That's two very bad things he's just done. And we will be with you in the battle. So what he said is, Ahab, I'm just the same as you. And Ahab, my people are the same as your people. And Ahab, now that we're joined together, let's go together into the battle. So what Ahab has succeeded in doing is something you could never have done by force of arms. He has created a union with Judah. And he could never have done it by force of arms, but he's done it by subtlety. Now, when you think about the bad decisions that Jehoshaphat did, just think about these bad decisions. They are progressive and incremental in character. So you don't take the last decision first. There's a lead up to it. There is a subtle, incremental, progressive compromise that leads to disaster. So this is creeping up on him. The first thing is he gives his son in marriage, probably for all the right reasons to unite the kingdoms and he's probably got the highest ideal in his head, but he's made a complete blunder. Then he accepts Ahab's hospitality. So he's now in a context where he's obliged to this king. He's under pressure. He's put himself in a very difficult position. He didn't need to. So now he's in in Ahab's place. Ahab is is the host and Ahab is making the suggestions. He's leading the conversation. So he naively agrees to Ahab's scheme. And actually, when you read it, Ahab was some guy. Ahab said, you know, I've got a great idea, Joshua. Why don't you dress up as me and I'll dress up as you and we go into the battle? What was Joshua thinking? Why why would you agree to such a thing? Absolutely crazy. Ahab, why do you want to dress up like me? There must be a reason for that. Well, there was a reason for that. He wanted to preserve his own life and sacrifice Jehoshaphat's life. And Jehoshaphat seems to have lost all ability to think and reason The thing, But he's being swept along by the subtlety of this King Ahab. And then there's a prophet. He has a kind of moment of conscience and he says, Ahab, do you have any prophet of God that can tell us whether we should go or not? Do you have any prophet? I mean... This is how far... It, but nonetheless, there's something in his conscience. Let's hear from God about this. So they wheel out the prophet. The prophet speaks for God. Says, this is going to be a disaster. And so Ahab doesn't like that at all. And Jehoshaphat, what does he do? Absolutely Nothing. So God's man is standing alone in that hostile environment. There's a godly king and God's prophet is standing speaking for God into that hostility and about to suffer terribly as a consequence and Jehoshaphat stays silent. Do you see the subtle compromise? Are you identifying with this in your own experience? Are you thinking about a time at you're work? Are you thinking about a time in your family? Are you thinking about a time in your community that you have done what Jehoshaphat has done? He does not stand with the man of God. He hides and he's quiet. And at the end of his life, after all of that disaster, and which God graciously recovered from, and I'm going to speak of that in a moment, he then makes another mistake, and he enters into a shipbuilding contract with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. And God actually says about that commercial adventure that it was a wicked deed on Jehoshaphat's part. He doesn't seem to have learned his lesson. And the Lord judged him at the end of chapter 20 by destroying all the ships. Do you know what? Christians generally get outsmarted by the world. Generally speaking, there is a naivety. There is a susceptibility. Generally, the folk, the system in the world is smarter, more subtle than we generally are. Jehoshaphat got completely done by Ahab. Completely. I mean, from start to finish, he had his number and he just played him like a violin from start to finish. Well, I was thinking about this in relation to us and that incremental progressive compromise. And when you think about that, just think about the steps of it. So there was a wrong relationship, there was putting himself in the sphere of Ahab's hospitality and therefore in a very dangerous position and then there's the naivety to agreeing to Ahab leading the conversation and making suggestions and him just going along with it and then the voice of God speaks into the circumstance and Jehoshaphat stays silent (coughs) and he won't stand with the man of God and then he goes into a wrong battle with him I wonder if you and I have ever taken these steps. I certainly can think of at times when I've taken steps like that. When you have had a wrong relationship of whatever, it can be commercial, friendship, it can be marital, it can be whatever it may be. And that relationship is just the beginning and it takes you into a sphere where you now are not in control and you now are being swept along. You're being swept along and you have moments, pangs of conscience. And Joshua had that, and he wanted to hear God's voice. But then when he actually heard God's voice. He actually just He stayed silent. He didn't go with it. It was just a pang of conscience. This is Joshua's bad days. And even although Ahab seemed to have a spiritual progress, will you go up with me against Ramoth Gilead? Actually, it was a disaster. he should never have gone. Bad days in the life of a good king with bad outcomes and do you know this when you look at jehoshaphat's life the bad outcomes took time but sin always has its consequences and sometimes the consequences of sin affect not just our generation but generations to come it certainly did in jehoshaphat's life if you look at his family, what happened was this, that Joshua said not only affected him, it affected God's people because as the leader, he committed God's people when he said, I am as you are and my people as your people. He committed the whole nation. And in chapters 21 and chapter 22, we read that after his death, his son Jehoram slaughtered all his brothers and turned the nation to idolatry. And then God struck him, you read this, with a terrible disease of the bowels. I mean, it sounds horrendous. And he died after eight years. But then it just came on and on. And his son Ahaziah became king. He lasted one year before he was murdered. Athaliah, his mo- mother, slew all his sons except for Joash. And Athaliah ruled the land for six years. Just a disaster. And all of this flowed out from Joshua's compromise with Ahab. All of it bad days bad outcomes but you know the story of joshua is not is not that that's not the story the overall story is that he begun really well he had a really bad spell but he had a tremendous recovery tremendous recovery and this is the positive message of jehoshaphat that having had bad days he then had better days and this is the message for christianity for christians There's not one of us who doesn't have a bad day or bad days. All of us do. Some of us go a wee bit, some of us go further, some of us go far too far. But it doesn't matter how far you go, there is still opportunity for recovery and for restoration and for re-establishing a relationship with God and service for God in your life. This side of eternity, it is possible... For any believer to be recovered to the Lord. God's grace is not exhausted. This side of the grave. So while there is life, there is hope. While there is life, there is opportunity. While there is life, there is, there is the extended grace and kindness of God towards his people. And that was the case of Jehoshaphat. God did not wipe his hands off him. God did not cast him off and said, Well, you've chosen Ahab's so on you go. Not so. God's grace was such that there were better days. And these better days came about in chapter 19. And after the disaster, which I haven't had time to go into in chapter 18, you discover this, that Jehoshaphat the king, he returns back. There is a return, he comes back. So you think about this graphically, you think about the northern kingdom and the south, and you think about them edging up towards the north. You remember he built barriers against the north coming down. The problem was that Jehoshaphat didn't fail because the north came to him. He failed because he went to the north. So sometimes we think that, you know, the world is encroaching in our life and, and satanic assault and all the rest of it. It's not the case. The fact of the matter is, it's not the world coming to us. It's us going to the world is often the problem. And here we have the situation here that he had been edging toward the north. He'd been going towards it. But now he returns. He comes back. And as he comes back, he discovers a welcome. He discovers peace. He discovers restoration. Because God sends a prophet to him. God has a word for him. God has something to say to him. There's no silence. Jachu speaks. And in chapter 19, Jehu comes out to meet him. And he comes with strong words. The words of grace. And he says, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? There it is. So there's no there's no kind of um, soft soaping this. This is the reality of what you've chosen, Jehoshaphat. You're going to have to face it. There's no way around it. You've made decisions and these are the decisions you made. You made a decision to help the ungodly and to love them that hate the Lord. Therefore, therefore, there are consequences. The wrath of God is upon thee. You see, decisions to love and have your affections drawn by those who have no love for the Lord. Your your decision to side with the enemies of God in your life in whatever way is not something that brings the pleasure of God or the blessing of God into your life. And Jehoshaphat listens. Now, there's a kind of irony in this because the prophet was actually related. He was the son of the man who'd prophesied to his father. And it was a similar set set of situations. And Joshua is going to face the music, but he does face the music. What's this called? Repentance. This is true repentance. Repentance in your life and mine is when we face up. No one can do it for you when you face up yourself to decisions you've made and you're absolutely honest about the decisions you've made before God. Joshua listens while the accusation is made and while his sin is exposed. But in verse 3 the prophet says this, Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and prepared thine heart to seek God. So God says, you know, I haven't forgotten all that stuff. I haven't forgotten the good. I haven't forgotten the steps that you took before this disaster. He said the whole thing is brought together and in the balance. And so he is accused of loving the world. Absolutely he is. Now listen, the Bible is very clear about this. James speaks about this and he speaks of worldliness. Now worldliness is not got to do with... Worldliness is not actually what you do or where you go. That's not worldliness. So, you know, some people may look at choices you make or you go somewhere or you do something and say, you know, that's worldliness. It's not. James speaks about worldliness in terms of your heart and your affection. So he speaks about being an adulterous, James, Because he looks at your relationship with the Lord like a marital relationship, an intimate relationship, the closest relationship you can have. And marriage is the closest relationship we can have on earth. So our relationship with the Lord is compared to that by James. And he says, you know, our God is a jealous God and there is an intimacy there that should be exclusive to the Lord. And he demands exclusive relationships with us. Our heart should be towards him. Our love should be centred upon him. But you know, we turn, and that affection that should be for the Lord is fixated and projected towards other things, other people. Projected towards the world. James says this, you're committing spiritual adultery. That's what it is. It's a transfer of affection from the legitimate legitimate object to the illegitimate object. That's adultery. You know, sometimes in the the sphere of physical relationships, we think that adultery is simply a physical act. It's not. Very often the physical act of adultery is simply the expression of the transfer of affections from its legitimate source to an illegitimate source or object. And the physical just follows that. It doesn't precede it. It's a consequence of it. It's an outworking of it. So when you think about adultery and when you think about spiritual adultery, it's all about the heart. And the, 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 the actions flow from that. So what's the answer to spiritual adultery? It's not simply fixing the actions. It's addressing the heart. And if we love the world, it's because our affections have been displaced. From the legit. how do you get your affections back <clears throat> not by just stopping stuff that's remorse that's feeling bad about stuff you do that won't sort anything repentance is when your affections are transferred back to where they should be and they're fixed upon the Lord and that by the way is often not a quick fix because you need to learn to love the Lord again as you once did. So here, Jehoshaphat is accused of, of loving the world. And so he did. And he had to experience and react and, and, and respond to the fact that he was under the discipline of God. And so he was. You know, what does he say? Well, he says absolutely nothing. There's no back chat. He's submissive to the divine declaration he just keeps his mouth closed and so there's no great words of remorse and there's no great wails and tears and there's no great ash getting thrown up in the sky or anything like this sometimes when you see all of that kind of stuff when someone's got caught in sin it's remorse time will tell of it's repentance well instead of answering what does he do? he acts Far better to look at what a person does in these circumstances than what they say. He acts. And in verse 7 to verse 9, it says he again took up the task begun in Judah by teaching the people the law. He got back to basics, right back to where he was originally. A task that was so wretchedly interrupted by his relationships with Ahab. Now he applies himself to produce an awakening among the people of God in all classes of the nation. So that he and the nation might return to God through the word of God. And you get that in verse number 4. And then he establishes judges in Judah. Judges that would not do what he had done which would be obliged to men rather than Jehovah. You can read that yourself and so forth. He discover this basically. He's under divine discipline and he reacts well to it. He reacts well. Now you remember his father didn't react well. You remember his father, the prophet came and said, you're depending upon me. And, and he had a very bad reaction to the word of God that came. Well, Joshua was a good reaction. And when the word comes to him, he just buckles down under the discipline. He makes the changes that are necessary and he implements them in his life and in the lives of others and lets it work out in time. That's a pathway of repentance. One writer said this, Nothing is more powerful in exhorting our brethren than to have dealings ourselves with God's discipline. And to have learned our lesson to the end, that is, until there is full deliverance. So it was with Peter, who only a short while previously denied his saviour, yet could preach to the ungodly, ye denied the holy and righteous one. Well, he knew all about it, because he had had to repent of the fact that he'd done the very same thing. So now he can bring that message to the people on the basis of his own experience. You know, one writer said, often there is no need to express in words the fact that we have learned our lesson from God. Deeds speak more forcibly than words to show our repentance. And so they do. Well, he introduces all sorts of reforms And you can read right through this, and I won't take time to deal with it. actually, in chapter 19. But he brings in the priests and the elders and government and all the rest of it. And then you come to chapter 20, and the last little bit of this section. And you discover this, and yet again, there is war that comes to Jehoshaphat. So in chapter 20, the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the, uh, the others, they come to make war against Jehoshaphat there's a vast army from three nations but you know what I don't have time to deal with this in through chapter 20 but do read chapter 20 because you discover this that Jehoshaphat has learned and now Jehoshaphat is going to do something he should have done with Ahab but he didn't but he's learned because in verse number 3 it says this Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. I absolutely love that. Here is a man who's been through a roller coaster, who has known hard times and bad days and better days and recovery. Back on track. Okay, let's test it. Let's see how you do, Joshua. This is what the Lord is doing. You've put all these reforms into place, you've done all the right things, you've shown yourself to be repentant. Okay. Let's see. And these armies come again. Number one, his first response was he was afraid. That, by the way, is no bad thing. He feared. He feared the enemy. And as a consequence, he turns his attention to seek the Lord. So he is afraid because what faces him is fearful and he recognises it what does he do? he turns to the Lord and he seeks the Lord and the storm clouds have gathered but this man is irresistibly drawn to God in prayer and he's marked by prayer and then he's marked by praise and when you read this it's the most bizarre chapter actually because Not only his prayer, which is very interesting, he praises God for who he is. It's like a model prayer. Um, he says art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nation in verse 6 power and might are in thy hands so no one can stand against thee he's appreciating the character of god he said god i know i've learned you're almighty no one can stand against you and then he praises god for his his mighty acts in history and he looks back in verse 7 and he says you're the same god who drove out the inhabitants of this land and gave it to abram our friend uh, your friend forever and so he says i know what you are i know what you can do and i know what you've done and he's afraid but he's dependent and he's prayerful and he says this and here is his confession of weakness in verse 10 through to verse 12 he says we are powerless so he's afraid but he's 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 praying to god and he's appreciating who god is and what god's done in the past and he's looking to himself and saying i have no power this is the undisputed leader of the nation. But it's a godly man, a wealthy man, a powerful man, a man who's got the respect of his people, but a man who understands that in himself he has absolutely no power. And then secondly, he says, nor do we know what to do. He's got no idea. This is quite a remarkable change from the man who was moving up north toward Ahab to form alliances, to drift away in disaster. It's better days. Things have changed. He's repented. And so here he is facing this problem. And I love this. He's he's afraid. And he's powerless. And he doesn't know what to do. But he's depending upon his God. And mind you, when you look at what God would have him do, he says, our eyes are upon thee to the Lord. And so he leads an army out from verse 14 down to verse number 30. And... The strangest army. It was an army of singers, not our singers from Bridgwater, but an army of. uh, It was a choir. So he's leading a choir into battle. Singing. That's what they went. That that was what they were armed with. And God encouraged them not to fear. He would undertake for them in the battle. And the prophets spoke to them. The people got up in verse 21. uh, And it says this. When he consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. And to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, to praise the Lord then gets to work. And he sets an ambush. So the Lord's going to do all the fighting they're going to do all the singing you see he was absolutely fearful he was appreciative of his God he was appreciative of his own weakness and powerlessness and they went dependent upon the Lord into the faith into the battle <coughs> singing his praises it's quite a picture it's a picture of faith. <clears throat> Hudson Taylor, that great pioneer missionary to inland China. He went through all sorts it's an interesting, you read his book, he went through all sorts of problems and difficulties. He lost his wife, he lost at least one child in death. And his own life was often in danger. He said this very interesting thing. It doesn't really matter how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never lies between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it will press you to his breast. Where does the pressure lie? Corrie ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place, uh, she used to have people come up to her and say, it's a quote, Corey. my what a great faith you have. She would smile and reply, no, what a great God I have. Where does the pressure lie? Do we take it all on ourselves so that it crushes us? Do we let it form a wedge between us and the Lord so that it separates us? Or do we allow it to push us towards him so that it might be shared by him and be in him? Josh, if I did that, but it was a rough roadie. (coughs) It's a rough road. But he got there, Now I don't know where you are on that road. And likely the person sitting beside you doesn't know where you are either on that road. You could be in the beginning, the good days, or you could be in the bad days. Maybe in the better days. But there is, wherever you are in that journey, remember this, that the outcome of Jehoshaphat's life was the evidence of true repentance, which led to blessing, which led to a deeper relationship with the Lord, which led to a a real experience of God working through him in his life. Trust that will be your portion. Let's just pray.